Welcome to Corizant Technologies, home of the Digital Executive Podcast. Welcome to the Digital Executive. Today's guest is Talal Shamoon. Talal Shamoon is the Chief Executive Officer of Intertrust. An electrical engineer and computer scientist by training, Shamoon was a researcher at the NEC Research Institute in Princeton, New Jersey, where he focused on digital signal processing and content security. Shamoon sits on several company boards, and he is a member of the board of directors at Intertrust and on the advisory board of Iron Pillar. A recognized inventor, published author, and frequent public speaker, Shamoon holds a bachelor's, master's, and PhD degrees in electrical engineering from Cornell University. Well, good afternoon to all. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brian. It's good to be here. Thank you very much. And thank you for making the time today. I know I traverse time zones all across the world doing this podcast, but it's always good to speak to somebody out of the Silicon Valley area. So I appreciate you again, making the time. Talal, we're going to just jump directly into the questions here. Talk a little bit about you and your career. Your career started out as an engineer in technology. You were a board member, a senior executive, and now you're the CEO of Intertrust. Could you share with our audience the secret to your career growth and what inspires you? Wow, that's a that's a great question. I've been CEO at Intertrust since 2003, so I kind of like I've been doing this for a long time. What inspires me is I like making things. And I like I like getting them out in people's hands and just sort of really affecting change, at, not just at a technology level, a gadget level, but at a societal level. And I, you know, I, I wasn't always sort of on the business end of things. I started life as a as a researcher, I was a, a research scientist uh, for a while in a lab in New Jersey, and I was really drawn to sort of big picture open problems. My, my field was electrical engineering, signal processing. You know, I, I worked a lot on some of the early media systems for the Internet and sort of walked into the security world there just as the dot com boom in Silicon Valley was beginning to boom in the sort of latest 90s. And Ironically, I, I always kind of hesitated moving out to Silicon Valley because I thought it was too transactional. I, I thought people were really just in a, you know, quick ideas that either made a buck or didn't. And I was driven by more intellectual missions, which is sort of why I was attracted to academic research, um, sort of in East Coast institutions. But in the middle of all of this, we ended up, my, my team and I stumbled into this way of protecting digital pictures and digital videos by hiding messages in them. and it just happened at a time where the web was exploding and people really needed that technology. And people started calling our lab, asking to buy our software. And you know, we were researchers. We wrote papers and computer programs and went to conferences. And uh, I kind of got to thinking, wow, someone wants to buy this. Maybe we should make a product around it. And uh, one thing led to another. We met the guy who founded this company. who's was this brilliant, brilliant inventor of Victor Scheer. And... Intertrust was just the right mix of make the world better, sort of big picture, deep problem institution for the ages and a really well-designed commercial enterprise. And it was just the bridge I needed to cross from sort of the East Coast academic research world into the you know swashbuckling world of Silicon Valley capitalism. And that that's what sort of got me here. So I'm attracted sort of the thing that really gets me out of bed in the morning is practical problems that needed solutions combined with something that's sort of a higher order mission. Thank you, Tal. I appreciate you sharing the story and your transition East Coast to West Coast. And I like how you described uh, both locations because they are unique, obviously. Tal, on this podcast, we're going to switch gears a little bit here and talk 
we like to dive into tech quite a bit, but we'll keep it high level today. But if you could talk to us about your vision of your company in this ever-evolving world of technology, especially where we've seen an explosion of connected devices that are becoming smarter by the second. Yeah. So maybe better to start with just describing the company very briefly and, and sort of place it in context. Intertrust is not a young company by Silicon Valley standards. It was founded in 1990 by this gentleman I just mentioned on a very bold vision, which was to add trust to the internet and distributed computing. And I, I don't know how many of your listeners sort of are tuned into the, the world of system science and computer science, but Basically, in the old days, when people built computers, they were just one machine that was locked in a building. And you remember the word mainframe and whatever. As time went on, those machines got smaller. You know, chips got bigger and faster and people could make smaller computers. We went from mainframes to mini computers to PCs. And when we went to a world of many machines, they needed to talk to each other. People came up with these paradigms that relied on networking to allow many small computers to do the task of many a smaller number of big computers. That's called distributed computing. Now, parallel to that, the world of networking was disrupted pretty heavily in the 1970s, 1980s by the internet, which was originally built for the military. And, and the original design point for the internet was build a computer communication network that could survive a nuclear attack. Nuclear attacks are mostly built around taking out centralized infrastructure. So the internet is, is designed to be highly resilient against you know single point or small number of point attacks but the design flaw in both cases in the in the in the computer design world and in the internet world which prevented them from really working effectively in the consumer space was that the assumption was everybody who was going to touch a computer was trusted because they were soldiers and everybody who was going to use the internet was trusted because they were soldiers now you know the military has ways of dealing with people who fall out of trust they also have ways of vetting people to make sure they are trusted. But when the person using a computer has a, an iPhone in their pocket and one minute they're using a banking app and they're trusted and one minute they're using a peer-to-peer -peer file sharing client to steal some videos, that's a very, very different threat model. So the old model of locking machines in rooms, which was the way computers were protected up to the age of the web in the mid nineties, or, you know, just assuming that everybody who was going to communicate on the internet was authenticated to begin with, that went out of the window with the PC and with AOL and CompuServe. So that was the sort of the primordial soup that Intertrust came out of. And Victor, uh, the founder of the company, was just this incredibly visionary person. He was trained as a sociologist, actually, not as an engineer. He was a startup guy. He'd always run his own companies, never worked for anyone else. He self-taught computer scientist, brilliant inventor realized that as computers and the internet turned into PCs and the web, people would use these machines to move digital objects around that were property. And as a sociologist, he realized that, you know, people built value chains around properties, they exchanged value, they wrote contracts, they enforced contracts. None of that was built into the infrastructure of the web or of operating systems. In 1988, 1989, I guess it was Windows back then. It was just beginning. Whatever Microsoft was selling and whatever people interconnected computers with didn't have any security inherent in the architecture. So what Intertrust did was sit down and say, okay, how do we make this web of distributed devices where you can't assume that any given person 
or any given computer program or any given data set is trusted, how do we make it trusted implicitly so people can just rely on this infrastructure to conduct transactions around digital objects? And that required four things. One, a highly distributed system to authenticate people contextually and on the fly in a way that delegated trust to different parties in different places at different times, but allowed strangers meeting in the night on the web to be able to trust each other digitally. We call that authentication. The second thing, very importantly, was every operating system on every machine that was digital needed to have a clean, well-lighted place that was safe for programs and data to go to get acted on. And it's protective processing, basically. And this was a big breakthrough. Data is just a bag of bits. It's just ones and zeros that float around. But data is property, like a song, for example, like an MP3. That's owned by someone and sold to someone. And maybe it's rented to someone or maybe you're using Spotify and it's a subscription. You couldn't just send it down there as a blank. You needed to send a bunch of rules with it that said, this is a subscription. It only works when it's Brian. It only works when Brian paid the bill this month. Brian can't email it to Jordan and have her play it. So we needed a system to apply digital rules to digital data as it traveled around. And that we call that feature digital governance. So authentication, secure computing, or protective processing, digital governance. And then finally, it is Brian. He did pay the bill this month. He downloads a song. Well, your, your music player needs to be told what to do. So you needed a way to authorize or send that thing a command securely across the cloud, down to the device, wherever the device is to play. And so those four things, authentication, secure computing, environment, governance, and authorization, that's what we did. Now, when we first came out with our first product in the late 90s, it was like we landed on the planet with antennas and web feet and a tail. I mean, no one really sort of was expecting any of this stuff. And I like to tell the story that we launched this product in 98, 99 that had a secure computing peer. It was a virtual machine that ran on Windows with governance, a distributed authentication infrastructure. The virtual machine could run on your computer, online or offline. It had a wallet inside it that could take digital money. You could send stuff like songs from person to person and have them like buy it on the fly and share it with their friends. And everybody got paid. Today, that's called cryptocurrency and peer-to-peer. Back then, it was like, wow, can I just stream some music? So the thing that's kept us going is we were way ahead of the time when we came out. The first market we entered was digital media music, primarily in the 90s, in the middle of the MP3 Napster thing. We provided the music industry with the tools they needed to go digital. We worked with them. We created what people know as digital rights management today. That went on a video that moved into mobile computing as PCs sort of went away from being the main thing people used for entertainment into smart TVs. And in the mid 20, like around 2010, we realized that the original vision that our technology should be applied horizontally across all distributed computing systems was playing out just as originally conceived in the, in the nineties. We decided to start beaming out in the new markets and we picked energy as the first breakout market for media because we believe that with renewable energy deregulation and IOT devices, the Internet of Things devices, the energy industry would be disrupted the same way the music and film industry were disrupted. They were attacked by, well, in music, MP3, peer-to-peer, and cheap broadband. 
And those three sort of conspired to break down the compact disc in the record store. Well, right now, wind turbines and solar farms and you know smart thermostats and stuff are breaking down the old model of coal fire plants and just here, have some electricity, don't worry about it. And we moved into an area that we're now calling digital energy. And uh, we were lucky enough to partner with a bunch of major energy industries who joined the shareholders we had in the consumer electronics and media space. And we've been pumping away. And it, it just feels like, you know, it's, it's going to be an endless task. It's going to be market after market. We will eventually get wired into all computing infrastructure, but it's also been a blast. I mean, we've, we've got a small team and just very motivated people who are really interested in changing the world. And that's sort of what keeps powering this thing. Thank you. Until I know you gave a, a great history of the company, where it began and how it really was ahead of its time. And you're still doing that today, which is awesome. That's like 30 years later. So thank you. And Talal, we talked a little bit about technology, but you're obviously leveraging some of the newer and emerging technologies in your tech stack. Could you share just one little brief sample of maybe what you're doing? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, it's probably the most relatable example for everybody listening is, you know, either secure music services or secure video services. I mean, we have many, many customers around the world. I'll use Netflix just because it's relatable. And Netflix have built their own technology, but they use, for example, Microsoft digital rights management, which is built under license to the antitrust technology. When you go up to Netflix, all movies work the same on all TVs. They check that it's you. They check your account. They make sure you paid. They stream the movie down securely to your television and you play it. It's not like you go up to Netflix and worry about the universal movie playing on the Samsung TV and the Disney movie playing on the Sony TV. They all work the same, but you can't it's not easy to copy and share the content because it's protected. So that's digital rights management in action. And that's interoperability in the presence of security in action. And there's, you know, entertainment and media is a, a very simple value chain. There's the, the creator and their representative, the studio in the case of film. There's the retailer or service provider, Netflix in this example. And then there's the device, the television or the phone. And our technology runs in all three of those. The, the creator can use it to package. The distributor can use it to create effectively um, a retail presence on the web. And then ultimately, there's a little piece of software that runs inside the TV that you know, initiates a transaction and then makes sure that the asset is secure when it's running in somebody's living room. So that's a very concrete example of what we enable. And we enable everything from the protection and encoding of the rights and the content all the way down to the point of consumption. And our technology makes sure everybody gets paid. Now, you want to generalize that, it's really simple. Take your Netflix, change the word video to any kind of data and change the word television to any kind of device and change the word you know, Netflix or any TV service provider to any internet retailer or distributor or what have you. And that's a generalization of what we're doing. So in the case of energy, when you make electricity at a wind farm, you can just send the electrons down the stream. Sure, that's the way it works. But the information generated by how many electrons you made, when you made them, where you made them, especially in an age where you can store those electrons in a battery, which, by the way, is an Internet device, or send them on down to a light bulb, which is also an Internet device with some of these new funky light bulbs that are coming out with. That's pretty much the Netflix example on steroids. And again, our technology animates those events digitally and makes sure the light bulb is really a light bulb, the wind turbine is really a wind turbine, gets the operators, all the data they need on things like weather 
to decide whether to store something or or send it on and so on and so forth. And that's a digital layer that sits on top of the energy grid. Now, I'll stop talking. Maybe you got some more questions for me, but there's all sorts of other issues that we help with underlying that example I just gave as well. But the the video example for me is the most relatable because everybody I know watches something on the internet. Thank you, Talal. We do have a bunch of technologists, geeks, nerds in our audience. And I say that in terms of endearment because uh, I'm, I'm a nerd as well. We appreciate you diving into the weeds like that. That helps really others learn about the technology that you're leveraging today. So Talal, last question here for you. Really just if you could share something with our audience from your career experience that might be helpful for those looking to grow their career in tech or leadership. Well, I mean, it's just a general, I mean, my career experience, my experience in general is, you know, life's built on two things. One, a bunch of lucky things that happen to you. And two, knowing what to do with them when they do happen. There's the old, you know, what is it? 90% of success is showing up rule. But, you know, there've been a couple of instances in my career where I could have just gone on just doing what I was doing. A door opened out of the blue. And this little voice in my head said, I know it's crazy, but walk through it. And a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people are a little too worried about letting go of something they're good at to try something different. And what I found is pretty much at every instance where that little voice told me to walk through the door, it worked out for the better. Now, I don't know if there's something going on subconsciously or not in my head. And it's not like I was playing Russian roulette with my career, but the big changes in people's, in, at least in my life, have always been due to some quantum leap that took place. And the things that trigger quantum leaps are usually sort of these out of the blue things that happen. Now, I don't believe things happen out of the blue. I think what happens is you build up to these events in your life. Sometimes you just got to close your eyes and, and and leap into it. I can tell you for, for me, I'm very thankful for a lot of things that have happened for me, but the best things that have ever happened to me, both personally and professionally happened completely out of the blue and just random events that I just decided let's have some faith and try it. So my, I guess my advice to people is when they hear that little voice saying, have some faith and try it, they should listen. Thank you to all. We like to hear these little nuggets that come out of people's journey throughout their career. And it's certainly helped influence others overcoming a challenge or, or maybe switching gears and jumping into a new career. So thank you. And Talal, it was a pleasure having you on today, and I look forward to speaking with you real soon. Thanks, Brian. This was fun. Bye for now. Bye.